It's the Forage Connection, grazing, growing, and feed with your hosts, Ben and Sarah. If you joined us last time, you know that we were unable to fit our entire conversation about corn silage into one episode. We're going to jump right back in where we left off, talking about how we can set our machine and get the most out of corn silage harvest with Dr. Hinato Schmidt of Lalamond Animal Nutrition. There are just a lot of technical things we can get into with corn silage, right? <laughs> I mean, you can go down so many paths, but it's true that it's really important that we're putting up good feed after you put all the effort into raising the animal and raising the, the corn. You want to make sure you're getting it fermented and put up well. But one of the things that I see a lot of producers look past is setting their machines. So depending on what style of harvester you have, or if you're hiring someone to harvest, this can all change uh, depending on your situation. But Dr. Schmidt, what would you want producers to hear in regards to kernel processing and chop length when they're setting their harvesters? Yeah, I think before you know you get to that point, uh, a good like pre-harvest planning, it's important just to inspect you know if they're doing their own chopping to inspect all the equipment the harvest everything completely from the you know the tip of the the harvest head all the way to the spout uh clean relubricate and double check everything is working uh see the engine the safety uh inspection on fire extinguishers uh caution lights and we're trying just to on the safety side, of course, but also avoid these costly breakdowns. It prevents some harvest delays. Now, on the settings, uh, for the kernel processing, for the rows, I would recommend a row clearance just on average, like around two millimeters, one to three, depending on the situation. And again, I would say you have to always monitor the dry matter. And if it's, it gets to the point that it's, it's really wet or immature, Below 32% dry matter is not going to make much of a difference. And if it's above like 40% dry matter, you're not going to start seeing as much as results in terms of processing of the kernels. And that's going to take a lot more in terms of, you know, time and fuel and wear and tear on the the equipment. Um, Average for the chop length... I would say around three quarters of an inch. That would be like a average number. If it's getting a little too much on the dry side, then maybe like a half of an inch, just to make it a little easier for the packing job. But then again, you have to be careful on where to go because if you start getting too short, then you start compromising that effective fiber. For BMR types of hybrids, and or if it's the corn hybrid's a little more on the wet side, you might be touching that one inch, especially if it's a little too wet, because then it's less, you know, openings on the plant particles to leach some of that juice. And uh, I haven't heard a, a lot about shredlage re- recently, so they had that specific corn uh, kernel processors, but then they go on a longer longer particle. It's more like an inch to an inch and a half. So we're really using, I guess, those, those metrics. We really hone in once, you know, we, we've got to get the moisture right first. 
and that's going to be the the really I, I maybe main pillar when you were talking about your four parts to the stool. Yes. Then we can use these other little things to tweak that a little bit towards the the type of you know silage that we're really wanting um, in terms of digestibility or making sure that we're getting proper pack um, starch digestibility, all those things. That's correct. It's that the dry matter will be the starting point and will be in accordance with the maturity of the plant. And then depending on the situation, if it's leaning towards more like a dry, mature type of corn plant or a little more immature or wet. Also the equipments, we, we, when I was in grad school, we did some, uh, just not real an experiment, but we were seeing that the corn that was going through, uh, uh, through the bagger would have a significantly reduced particle size. So depending on the equipment, it's just another thing to consider. So it's like, well, I can chop a little longer in the field because it's going to go through all that mechanical processing with the bagger and the particle size will be reduced. I think that's a great point. Once in a while, I work with a producer who doesn't have a kernel processor and they're worried and have questions about that and aren't in a place to get one. But it's it's like you said, it's all part of tweaking the system. So making sure we're harvesting at the right time and the right moisture is probably the real starting point and the most important thing. Yes, Sarah. And specifically for that type of circumstance, if they don't have a kernel processing, then it's advised to go a little shorter too. So about half of an inch on the corn silage. And if they have available the uh, the particle size separator, you know, the, the Penn State shaker box, it's always like another tool that you can use just to, sh- to see how it is the distribution of the different particles. When it comes to kernel processing, is that something that, um, you know, we need to be keeping an eye on as we're actually harvesting um, that we can check on or is it same with chop length? We set those before we get into the field. Are we just kind of hoping that everything's going to come out right in the end? Or is there something that Sarah's holding up a cup now? <laughs> Leading question here. Um, something that we can be doing while we're uh, actually in the midst of harvest and, and adjust as we're going. Yes, I, I would say that there should be a, a person during the harvest that will check the uh, moisture, the chop length. You know, they're coming from different fields just to have an idea how it is. And for sure, the kernel processing. So the, the processing cup, it's a really good tool. It's easy. You just fill that cup and you spread the different, you know, the, the forage particles and you try to find like a whole kernel. And, uh, you know, ideally, you're trying not to find any whole kernel. So this is really like an easy way to do. Uh, there is also one with a bucket of water that you just throw the particles in the book of bucket of water. And the plant particles will be floating. So you scoop that stuff and all the kernels will be on the bottom. And you can also, you know, maybe it's, uh, it's a, it has a little more in terms of labor, but then it's, I think, easier just to see all the kernels on the bottom of that pan. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you always hear about these different stories. I mean, I, I grew up on a farm, and I, I, I know how it is. And uh, my dad was like that, and I'm a little bit like that. Sometimes you question some things, but the producer has, we always have a reason <laughs> why you do that. So uh, I, I'm on this online group with different, you know, silage people. And somebody was saying that, well, I was harvesting for this producer. 
and I decided just to open the kernel, like stop the kernel processing because it would go easier on the fuel, it would go faster and save the producer some money. But then all the whole kernels were there. <laughs> so the producer was like really angry about the whole thing. And the person that did the harvest didn't get it. So it's there. I think there's still some part of this uh, education that, you know, we think about producer meetings, but sometimes we have to extend a little to everybody that's involved. So, so in that case specifically, we're saving a little bit of money on the harvest cost, but we're losing a whole lot on the actual energy that we're extracting from that silage at the end. Exactly. And, and, and that's what you're going to have for the next, you know, for the whole next year or next season. So that's why it's also important, you know, you try to do the best you can, because that's, that's going to be the feed for, for a pretty good amount of time. So we've talked about a lot of stuff from the, the harvest standpoint. We kind of went over the, the moisture standpoint. We talked about setting the machine here, what we can do. Um, last thing kind of in the field, and I'm sure that you have plenty of thoughts on this, is it seems like there's a lot of new products, a lot of new stuff coming out every day um, in terms of you know what we can be doing to add to the silage from an inoculant standpoint. What thoughts, what, what would you have producers consider from what we can be applying to help that microflora for our silage piles? Uh, I would, I would say to do like a little homework before. So, you know, learn a little about the inoculants. If you're not really familiar, what you expect from them, uh, who is selling, if it's a primary manufacturer, what type of, uh, quality control, or even like, a uh, type of information you can see on the label information about what type of bacteria, what strains, what amount of bacteria. Some formulation contain enzymes just to feed a little more the bacteria in some challenging or specific situations where sugar is limiting. Uh, see, I guess, the if there is some independent data, the more data, the better, just to showing that the product works. And don't look at cost at first you know this is a more like an investment and in terms of types of inoculants there are some just for that initial phase of fermentation just to make it more efficient to produce that lactic acid so basically they can be used in any crop because you can always make a good fermentation better you can always get more on dry matter and nutrient retention and then there is a second type of inoculant. So these are more like a combination type of products because they have this type of bacteria that I just talked about for the front end or the initial fermentation. But there is also a specific strain of lactic acid bacteria that helps with the feed out stability. Basically the silage will remain fresh or cooler for a longer period of time. And normally is by the production of a moderate amounts of acetic acid. And acetic acid, you know, we have that in vinegar. Uh, acetic acid works just like propacid. That's the most common, I guess, ingredient of all these uh, TMR preservatives. So depending on the situation, if it's something that I don't have challenge during the feed out, so producer can always use that front end product, but then in situations that, yeah, it's always heating or I'm feeding my silage during the hot time of the year. I'm selling to somebody, um, moving from a place to another. 
then they should consider the other type of the combination products. And normally they are based on an organism that's called uh, Lactobacillus buchneri. Just, uh, just remember that those are live organisms. So you try to keep them away from uh, sunlight, from a uh, moisture, heat source. And when you're in the field in the summer and you have the inoculant that's mixed in the water, when that solution starts getting around 90 degrees, then it's time to either throw like an ice pack or a frozen soda bottle just to make sure that you're not going to, you know, basically cook the bacteria. It seems over the years, inoculant has become more popular and more common, and we're seeing people put it on more readily. And that's great as long as they're able to find good sources of it, like you said. Mm -hmm. So we've discussed quite a few different things about in the field, how we can really make things come to light and do a good job of managing our silage. When we get to that last step before feed out, we're at the pile or the bunker or the silo. Uh, there's a few things we really need to make sure happen so that we get good feed in the end. And I'd say typically the thing we need to be most careful about is when we're putting up silage piles or putting silage in bunkers to make sure that we're doing a good job of packing and covering. So Dr. Schmidt, what suggestions would you have about packing some general rules of thumb or issues you see producers have out there? I think the main challenge nowadays is just these harvesters. They, they, they are going through like the acres and you have so many like tons delivered per hour. So it's, it's a challenge to match that when you're bringing all those loads, you know, to the site to be packed. And oftentimes there's just not enough time for the push tractor to make that six inch or less layer, so that's really important. And you, you, it's just hard to find that compromise of the delivery rate of the forage and the packing weight and the packing time. So there's, it's something that you really have, you know, we, we need to pay attention to and sometimes to slow down or I don't know, start doing if possible two piles at the same time, because then you'd have like, you kind of like dilute that high uh, tonnage that's coming in. Uh, the six, as I said, the six inch layers, they're really important. You know, at the very least, if you can spread that and drive through the whole surface, it will make a big difference. I remember I, I was talking to Dr. Keith Bolson once, and he said that he placed an egg under, I don't know if it was nine inches or a foot of that fluffy forage, and the tractor, the packing tractor, drove over and it didn't break the egg. So it's just, if it's not that little thin layer that you're packing one over the next one and the next and the next, and you decide just to go through like a whole foot or, or even thicker, you're not going to get rid of the air. So this layer thickness, it's a big thing. Uh, there is uh, some, uh, like a quick and dirty, kind of like a cowboy math, they call the 800 rule. So basically, it's the amount of forage that are being delivered times the 800 factor, and that equals the amount of packing weight that you should have. So just to make it easier, if the delivery rate is 100 tons per hour, then you should have 80,000 pounds of you know packing weight over the pile. So then sometimes when you think of more like hundreds and hundreds of tons that are being delivered, 
it's almost impossible to have all that packing weight or all that those tractors, you know, trying to make a good job. And, and and then there is also the safety aspect that you have all that traffic. So it's another thing that we uh, we should consider. So the 100 rules, it's a nice thermometer to see the packing weight. Uh, the delivery rate, also, it's another important factor. And the six-inch layers, I think those would be like the most important. And uh, another thing to have in mind is the better you pack that forage, not only you're making the fermentation a lot better because you're making everything in aerobic easier, quicker, but then the capacity of that volume, you can pack a lot more tons on that same amount of area. So some people, they, they say, oh, I don't have the the uh, the real estate and I have some space. And sometimes you can just increase like a, you know, a few pounds, dry matter per cubic feet of density. It's going to make a good difference on how many tons you're going to be packing. With that increased use of inoculants, I feel like sometimes working with different folks, it feels like, oh, maybe I don't have to worry about packing quite so much because I've got the safety net of inoculants or even moisture content or, you know, different things like that. Um, if we're not packing and putting that pile together right and harvesting right, are those inoculants able to basically save us from having bad silage um, in those cases where we're not keeping an eye on those main factors? Yes, the, the inoculants are a good um, tool in the box, but they are a tool in the box. If you're challenging too much, you cannot just rely on, oh, I'm going to use inoculant and that's going to take care of the, the problem. And it's not always like that. I've seen and I have manuscript research findings showing that the inoculant really saved, like from a clostridial fermentation, it saved from uh, nutrient loss during feed out. But I, I, I just had this conversation going through, through like a report with a producer and the packing density was not really adequate so also we call porosity so the porosity was high and I mentioned I was like if this is a challenge there is that type of product the inoculant that helps when the there is this some problems with the packing we feed out stability etc and he told me the same thing you mentioned <laughs> Ben it's okay so if I use this product I don't have to pack I was like no I didn't I didn't say that <laughs> The best, uh, the better the conditions we give to the inoculants, we're gonna get the most out of them. So those would be like the perfect conditions of this, of, for this bacteria. So you get enough amount of sugars, you have the proper moisture range. They are under anaerobic conditions, so they can do that conversion of sugars to lactic acid. Mm-hmm. If there is oxygen around, you know the lactic acid bacteria survives and it's still active but just has a different type of metabolism so it's one of those things like it's not a if it's not under the ideal circumstance then you should not expect like perfect outcome from the from the fermentation even in a nutshell dr schmidt you can correct me if i'm wrong but inoculant like you said it's a great tool rather than improving necessarily the situation we're in with our silage, it's going to help us maintain what we have, but not going to fix the issues that might be there. Is that a safe statement? Yes. 
and it just helps with that okay let's save the most of the dry matter and nutrients just by making the fermentation more efficient mm-hmm. i mean there is that parenthesis that we discuss about corn silage that over time you have more on that starch digestibility so it, it kind of like improves with the storage and uh it, it's more like something that i've been seeing with the reports some type of inoculants i'm pretty sure that's helping degrading that protein when i look at the numbers but in the end of the day like you said it's it, it, it's just a tool to help on this process and uh, and recently on a survey that we did i think unfortunately a lot of producers they said we use the inoculant but only when we have some sort of challenge so it's still that kind of like frame of mind that, oh, I'll have another tool to go around this problem, but not like, let's make the fermentation the best we can. Yes, I think that uh, the more producers understand inoculant and how those processes work, the better tool it can be for them. So really appreciate that comment. When we're discussing working with the pile, another thing that we often see is different types of coverings. Now, dairy producers tend to know their covers and really want to protect that feed, but we have beef producers that have a totally different outlook on their feed. Of course, they want good feed, but they're looking at tonnage uh, more so than they're looking at quality a lot of times if we're feeding out cattle in a feedlot, for example. So what are some things we should look for, especially along the lines of beef producers with covering? How quickly should we cover? Is there a certain type of covering producers should be looking at? Yeah, they, uh, the dairy folks, they any, anything goes wrong in the diet, they see the next day in the milk tank. So <laughs> they are a lot more sensitive about that. And uh, and I see it's a, it's a different reality on the, on the feed yards that it's more about, okay, let's get that little bit of scratch factor and more on the tonnage. And even sometimes with that, you know, you see some spoilage and, oh, it's just about, I don't know, 7 8% of the diet. But it, it's still feed. It's still like, you know, you're losing that investment, mm-hmm. all that stuff that should be converted to, to meat. Uh, I, I, I still see some piles that are not covered. And if producer comes to me and say, I can only invest either on a plastic or on an inoculant, what should I do? I would say cover the pile, cover your silage. You know, I'm not selling plastic. <laughs> the company is selling inoculant and I do the tech support for the inoculant products. But I would say, first of all, cover your silage. Not only you have all that surface that's exposed to air and the air will penetrate you know, kind of like easily because it's the you know it's harder to pack on the on the top of the surface, and it's also exposed to the elements to to rain and and whatever else. So the regular polyethylene plastic, you know, the sheet of plastic, it's it's fine. If some people they like to go maybe like a next step, so the the oxygen barrier films they've been in the market for a while for I don't know at least like fifteen maybe twenty years. And I really like them because they just sit over the surface and, and it's almost like surrender wrap and eliminate some of the air pockets in addition to the lower, you know, transfusion of oxygen. But just the, if they're using just this, like a single 
film, a single sheet of plastic, and using the tires and covering everything, you try, you know, you try to do as fast as possible. I've seen a couple of research papers that showed after six hours of that forest, you know, being exposed to air, you start seeing some issues in terms of lower sugar content, uh, bad fermentation. So there's still some window. And as they're making the pile, if they can just cover as they go, that would be ideal. But uh, always, yeah, always cover. How about covering timing, uh, Hanato? When we're talking about putting up that silage, how quick after the pile is packed should we be covering it? As soon as possible. <laughs> uh, uh, ideally, you, you finish packed and you get some crew or some people that will start covering. You know, you try to get that air out of the system as, uh, as fast as you can. Because when you think of the pile, and all that circumference, all the outside, it represents a lot of feed that's exposed mm -hmm. to air. So it's, uh, you know, it's already like hard enough to pack those final layers. And if it's, it's still allowing the oxygen to penetrate, it's just going to become more and more of a challenge. So again, there is those, those studies that set something around, you know, six hours after six, sometimes nine hours. Um, you still keep that quality on the silage, but then past that, you start seeing some more, you know, challenges in terms of sugar amounts for the fermentation. Uh, the top it get, starts getting drier and even harder when you cover, and then you start increasing the, the risk of molding. One of the challenges when you look at the degradation of a silage pile, especially when you don't cover it, that mold layer or that, that layer on top gets compacted, and so it a lot of times looks like, oh, we're not losing that much to spoilage on top. You know, you took all of that pretty big chunk of the, when you look at the surface area on the outside of a pile and you run the math on it and it shrinks down, it looks a lot less than what we're actually losing. And then we're also losing it, you know, like you said, to mold and, and dry matter loss beyond just the loss of nutrients. We're actually physically losing um, some of our feed from that standpoint too. Yes, and uh, when you look at that crust, you know, that top layer, that black crust that it, you know, you normally see, it represents three times the thickness of the original layer of the fresh forage. So it is, it, it is a considerable amount of feed that it just got spoiled and compressed on that black layer. And there's still, there's still going to be a little bit of a gradient, a little transition until you finally reach that, you know, good silage, let's mm -hmm. say. And uh, on some, some data from Dr. Bolson, on three different crops, it showed that if you don't cover, and that was for uh, alfalfa, corn, and sorghum, on the top 10 inches, you lose, yeah, they, they lost almost 80% of the material on that 10 inch layer. Wow. So that, 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 that's a lot. That's a lot of dollars right there mm -hmm. and a lot of time. So... If we get everything done correctly and we've we've put up our pile, we've we've used the right inoculants, we covered it like we were supposed to, eventually we've got to open the whole thing up and, and start using that product. Um, we mentioned a little bit before, uh, you know, how long does that pile need to sit ideally, especially when we're looking at corn silage? And then uh, what recommendations do you have when we're looking at actually going about the feed out process to, to maintain quality? 
uh, during storage, I would say it's not a bad idea just to, you know, inspect, especially the plastic or if it's a bag silo, you know, look for some sort of damage or holes and, and just like put some sort of tape. There is a specific tape for that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's good to rub some alcohol so the tape sticks a lot better. You get some of that wax off. And uh, during feed out, you know, you try to go through the entire face at least six inches every day. So that will be recommended. And you're just winning that war against the oxygen that's penetrating the face. If you can go a little faster on like challenging times or if it's heating or poorly packed, that would be advisable. But once you have everything on a pile, it's kind of like it is what it is. So it's important to design that pile, you know, in terms of piles, of course, you can change. Mm -hmm. It's important to design based on the feed out on a, on, per day. For example, I need this many tons. I have this particular width or height and, uh, and, and the length. So how can I calculate this volume and go six inch or nine inch every day? So go through the whole face, uh, six inch per day at least. Um, try to minimize damage on the face. And uh, when everything is nice and straight, you have less of a surface area that's exposed to air and also it, it's safer so if you can you know when removing with uh, for example uh, a rake you try to do on on a backwards type of angle so you can avoid overhangs and not to leave like any material just you know you try to get the most out of the front of the silo not leave some uh, silage that will be you know fermenting or, or spoiling all the way to the next day and you mix that silage that's being spoiling with some good silage. So when we're when we're talking about proper feed out that really goes back to the initial development somewhat. We don't want to be creating a pile that's too big so that we can't maintain that proper with 6 inches per day. So we really have to be thinking about that before we even start harvest here this year if we're putting our pile up somewhat. Is that correct? Yes, that's 100% correct. You do that proper pile design and it'll be a lot easier to do that feed-out management. And I have all you know these questions uh, very frequently. It's all, which one is better? Is to go like halfway on the pile and come back to the other half? Or just go really slow across the face? And it is almost, it's almost like, well, you need to take a shot. You want the left arm or the right arm? It's, <laughs> you, you, you're still going to have that issue with the oxygen that's penetrating, you know, on the first example, that half of side that's going to be exposed or on the, on the feed out phase that is too large. So depending on the situation, the air can penetrate as deep as four feet. So it's, you know, it, it's harder just to keep that, that face fresh, if you will. Mm -hmm. So maybe one of the main points people can really do to minimize losses with face feed out is to keep that as vertical and as slimmed up as they can and try not to leave silage sitting off to the sides in the corners of the pile or the bag. Yes. And if you, if you can leave a little like a concave aspect, so you're not creating like an overhang, that's, that's a good idea too. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's, getting air out of that the whole system 
So in the you know in the beginning you just want that fermentation. Like if we do, you know, folks that do some canning or fermenting at home, what do you do? You make the brine, you put some veggies or whatever you want to pickle, and you need to put away on the top so it's not in contact with the air. Otherwise, we'll you know start seeing molding and all that stuff. And during feed out, I, I really like to do analogy with a with a loaf of bread that. You, know, you look at the ingredients, there is a, some preservative like the organic acids in the silage. You open the bag and you take a slice and another day, almost like feeding out of the bunker. <laughs> and you're getting close to that expiration date. So it's like, oh, okay, let me place my bread and think about another way to preserve it. So, oh, let's put it in the fridge. So the low temperature is still going to keep the, you know, the microbes quiet. But at some point, you open that fridge, you squeeze another week or 10 days. One day, you open the fridge and you see all the molds, like the red and gray. So everything has this, you know, expiration date and the oxygen, it's one of pretty much the main factor. Everything but a Twinkie, right? We can pretty much (laughs) count on it molding. (laughs) So this is been great information, Dr. Schmidt, on how we can manage our corn in the field, put up good silage, keep it stored well, and feed it out. But none of that matters if we have a silage-related accident. So what are some things that producers can keep in mind to keep themselves and their employees and family members from getting complacent and being unsafe? It's, uh, I, I think the most important is that, you know, don't be complacent. It's, it's, it's that mentality that, oh, come on, I've been doing this all my life. I know about everything. And sometimes you just don't pay attention. And when something happens, then it's just too late. You get to that, oh my God moment, you know, that's it. And even on some, uh, on some, let's say some strategies, for example, an employee would be in the front of, of the face of the pile and he has like a, a rope that it's connected or a harness or something, but then there is an avalanche. And even if you survive, when you'll be pulling, you know, the person out of that silage, I, I don't know how many, if there will be any bones that will be in, intact. I mean, we talk about the density of the packing, or the packing density of the silage that we recommend about 45, 44, 45 pounds fresh matter per cubic feet. So in one cubic feet, it's 45 pounds that could be like, you know, falling in your head. So it's always, you know, be careful. Uh, train everybody on, on that operation. Make sure you keep the record so it's safe for the employee and the employer. Always have somebody with you called the buddy system. And uh, at least somebody that knows where you are working and be aware of your surroundings. So always, you know, stop and listen and look. And as you said, if, you know, if safety is not there, then nothing else matters. I know you mentioned earlier, Dr. Keith Bolson, a couple of times, he uh, has passed away, but was a great researcher out of Texas. And he started, him and his wife, Ruthie, started something called the Bolson Safety Foundation. And there is some great resources there. If you're looking for more resources, silagesafety.org is one place that uh, producers or anyone can go to get information 
on being safe with silage, making sure everyone goes home safe and providing information to employees. I think safety, like you said, is really the most important thing at the end of the day. Yes. Uh, on the technical side, we, you know, we discuss about all these different steps and they are equally important. So if you, if there is something wrong with the quality of the initial material or the packing job, or in, there will be a problem in the end or a lower quality. That's what I mean. And uh, yeah, we try just to get the most out of our crops and, and either convert to milk, meat, and do this on a safe way. Well, Dr. Schmidt, we really want to thank you for taking some time to talk with us. I know, you know, people listening, it seems like everyone's got a unique circumstance or, or situation sometimes. Um, if they'd like to reach out to you personally, uh, is there a good way to get in contact with you? Yes. Uh, my email is rschmidt at lalaman.com. So rschmidt at lalaman.com. And that's everybody is more than welcome to reach me to send me a note or my cell number also it's 402-850-8089 so anytime there is a question or uh, any comments or, or anything that's silage related and they need like a second opinion i'll be more than happy to help thank you so much dr schmidt again for joining us today and thank all of you for listening in and joining us for the forage connection <laughs>